Welcome to another edition of American Bankruptcy Institute Podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. Today we continue a theme of past podcasts, namely why have Washington-based efforts to stem the foreclosure tide failed and what can or should Congress do about it? Programs such as Hope Now, Hope for Homeowners, and the new Making Home Affordable Plans have consistently overpromised and underdelivered when it comes to encouraging renegotiation of underwater home mortgages. Meanwhile, the foreclosure figures continue to rise, possibly as many as 9 million by 2012, even as home values continue their freefall. Our guests today have some explanations for this phenomenon. They are Dr. Paul Willen, Senior Economist and Policy Advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, and Dr. Christopher Girardi, Research Economist and Assistant Policy Advisor at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Paul's research focuses on household financial management, in particular mortgage markets. He's been widely published in such scholarly journals as the Journal of Finance, the Journal of Public Economics, the Review of Economics and Statistics, and elsewhere. His work on the origins of the subprime crisis have been cited in many major newspapers across the country. Prior to joining the Boston Fed in 2004, Dr. Willen was on the faculty at Princeton and the University of Chicago. He did his undergraduate work at Williams College and earned his PhD from Yale. Chris is a research economist and assistant policy advisor in the economic group in the research department at the Atlanta Fed. His major fields of study are real estate economics, applied microeconomics, and macroeconomics. Dr. Girardi is also widely published in several major economic journals. He received his doctorate in economics from Boston University and earned his bachelor degree in economics and physics from Hamilton College. Paul and Chris's most recent work, published last month with a co-author, is directly titled, Why Don't Lenders Renegotiate More Home Mortgages? The paper reports on their empirical study of the practice of securitization, frequently cited as a root cause of why voluntary mortgage modification isn't happening. Welcome to ABI Podcasts, Paul and Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's uh, uh, start at a, a, a recent uh, Senate hearing on the on the topic, uh, examining the slow pace of mortgage modifications uh, held in in July in the Senate Judiciary Committee, where several senators and consumer advocates expressed deep frustration with the pace of mortgage modifications, blaming both lenders and servicers. What does your research tell you about the reasons for the failure of these many government programs that have been rolled out to much fanfare by both the Obama and the previous Bush administrations? Okay, so let me just start by saying that uh, 
uh, I speak today, uh, and I think I speak for Chris too, uh, we speak as uh, researchers and as concerned citizens, but not as representatives uh, of either the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston or Atlanta or of the Federal Reserve System uh, as a whole. Okay, with that in mind, uh, let me say, let me just start by saying that um, uh, the servicers and the lenders uh, are not um, public servants. They are uh, for-profit businesses, uh, and the lender directly and the servicer indirectly are charged with maximizing the value of the loan to the investor. And so that's the challenge they face. And so there are times when a modification may be in the interest of the investor, and that's when they should do it. And when it's not in the interest of the investor, uh, they shouldn't do it. Uh, that's their, that's what their, uh, that's the, that's the program that they've been, uh, that they've been set. So, uh, when we complain about the slow pace of modifications, um, what we're really complaining about, uh, from a public policy standpoint is that we don't see more modifications happening. Uh, but we're not, we're not, there's no reason why, uh, we have, any right to really blame the servicers for doing it, they may be doing what's in the interest of the investor. And so what we argued in our uh, uh, paper was that when you think about the decision to modify a loan, uh, you can't do what a lot of people think you can, which is just to compare the loss that the investor faces in a foreclosure, which can be considerable, uh, with the cost of modifying the loan. And the reason for that, so the cost of modifying the loan is is always small relative to the losses that the investor will incur uh, in a foreclosure. But the lender faces two risks uh, when modifying a loan. The first is, a, is, which is quite well understood, which is the, the risk that the loan will, uh, that the borrower will default again uh, after the lender has renegotiated the mortgage. And then all that the lender has done by renegotiating this mortgage is just postpone the foreclosure mm-hmm. in an environment in which house prices are falling and in which uh, uh, the borrower has no incentive to maintain the house, they may end up recovering considerably less uh, in, a, in a foreclosure because of the renegotiation. That's redefault risk. But I think the thing that people have not really understood is the importance of self-cure risk, which basically is the possibility that the borrower is going to um, get back on track uh, without any assistance from the lender. And in that case, the, any money that the lender gives to the borrower, uh, any concession the lender makes uh, to the borrower in a renegotiation uh, is just uh, is just wasted. Does this uh, suggest then that lenders are actually behaving um, quite rationally in resisting mortgage modification, at least as it's presented to them uh, today? Uh, you know, we can't say a priori. I mean, you have to know, you know, you have to look at, uh, we would have to know exactly what data they're seeing. But there's nothing about their behavior at this point which we can categorically say is irrational. No, I mean, I just want to be careful that, that you know, from our data, we don't know exactly what assumptions they're making. We don't know how, for example, they're discounting future cash flows. That's a decision that, uh, that they make. Uh, so it's, it, what we're saying is that you can't say simply because we see modifications, which a lot of people have, that we see modifications in which we see situations in which the lender loses a large sum in the foreclosure, uh, that that is evidence that there's an inefficiency here and that the lender would have lost less by modification. We have no way of knowing uh, without detailed information about the borrower whether a modification would or would not have made sense. But you're confidently able to 
uh, limit or even exclude the uh, securitization as the as the culprit, if you will, for the reason for the limited number of modifications. Yeah, that's well. That that's something that we are. We think we've sort of uh, shed some light on with the study, which is one one of the nice things about our our data is that it allows us. It would, well, provides a sample of both securitized mortgages as well as. Uh, mortgages that are held on the portfolio uh, of banks. And so we can look at each, each group, uh, and, and we do so in the paper, and we look at the, um, the incidence of modification for, for both groups of loans. And basically what we see is, uh, first, very low levels of modifications for seriously delinquent loans, both securitized as well as portfolio. Uh, and then the second thing is that there, there doesn't seem to be much difference. Um, both unconditionally as well as sort of conditional on a bunch of, you know, detailed borrower and, and mortgage characteristics. Uh, and so what we're not saying is that there, there don't exist uh, contract frictions in securitization trusts, but what we are saying, I think, with the paper is that um, if they do exist, they are not uh, binding in the sense that they are, they are not the reason for why uh, that it, they are not the reason uh, that explain that would explain the, the low level of modifications that we see uh, in the data right now. Let me let me just say one of the uh, one of our uh, critics, uh, professor by the name of Adam Levitin from from Georgetown. Uh, the thing that he said to me, I think, which sort of encapsulates is, in a way, what's most surprising about this is not really the difference between the portfolio and the securitized loans. It's the sheer level uh, of modifications of portfolio loans. I mean, basically what we find is that, in a sense, even if we had said nothing about securitized loans, the simple fact that only 3% of the portfolio loans uh, get modified, that's enough to tell you that that securitization, that there's obviously something that's blocking them from doing modifications, and it, 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 even in a world, even when we just exclude securitized loans entirely, uh, we don't see a lot of modifications. And so you concluded further that uh, safe harbor provisions intended to shelter servicers from investor lawsuits are not particularly likely to affect the number of modifications. No, and in fact, I think you could even argue that, um, uh, you know, the, the servicers face a lot of incentives, as we know, uh, many different ones, and they, they show up in all kinds of complex uh, ways. So it is certainly possible that they are modifying, they're foreclosing on loans when they should modify, and that's possible. If they're doing that, of course, it's a violation of the contract, because the contract says that they're supposed to, uh, supposed to, to modify the loan when it's in the investor's interest to modify the loan. And so if, in fact, they're foreclosing when they should modify, ironically, the safe harbor could be exactly the wrong thing because it actually shelters them from a lawsuit by investors who want them to modify more loans. So uh, there's no... Um, uh, the say if you're if the there are two separate issues here. One of them is that there may be limitations in the contract that prevent them from doing modifications. But another issue is that uh, they may just have no incentive to do modifications. And putting in a safe harbor that the, the preventing investors from suing you does not do anything to align the incentives uh, of incentors and servicers any better than they they already are. One of your other uh, conclusions. Uh, was that the number of what you called, quote, preventable foreclosures uh, 
may be far fewer than many believe. What do you what do you mean by that? Uh, well, Chris uh, pointed me today to um, uh, uh, something from the Congressional Budget Office uh, about um, uh, about preventative care. Uh, and um, and there's this assumption I think that people make about that that uh, you know that prevention is is in medicine always saves you money, um, but uh, the logic in in that case is exactly the same as it is here. It's not clear uh, that preventing disease will be cheaper from the standpoint of society uh, than waiting to see if it happens and then curing it afterwards. If preventing, if you pre- have to prevent. Uh, if you have to apply the preventative care to a lot of cases where you don't know whether the person will ever get the disease, then you may end up spending more preventing it than you would have had to curing it after the fact. And that's the same thing here. And so it may be that there really aren't that many preventable foreclosures. Most, most borrowers are either so in such deep trouble that there's nothing you can do to help them, or they're probably in good enough shape that even if you did nothing, they'll, they'll probably be able to save themselves. So let me say, I think one of the things I keep coming back to is uh, people say that um, that modifying a loan is a lot like underwriting a, a new loan. But, you know, underwriting, when you underwrite a loan, basically you have to figure out one thing. Is this borrower capable of, of, of making the payments on the loan? Uh, when you modify a loan, that's the first thing you do. Your first thing you have to ask is, is this borrower going to even be able to make the reduced payments? But then if you find the borrower really can make the reduced payments, you may find that, in fact, the borrower does so well that they can make their existing payments. And so it's a, it's a much more challenging thing to do to find a borrower who's good enough that they can make a reduced payment, but not so good that they can make uh, their existing payment. And, and that's the challenge that, uh, that servicers face, finding those borrowers, the sort of knife edge of someone who's good enough that they can make some payment, but not good enough that they can make in good enough shape that they can make uh, uh, the um, the payment that they were originally contracted to. You further um, pointed out uh, in the paper suggested that one way to achieve uh, better outcomes or results in terms of modifications would be to increase the financial incentives to investors or even to borrowers. Uh, can you explain what you uh, what you mean there? Um, how how large is large? Uh, well, we so we have a proposal um, on our uh, uh, website. It's not Chris is actually not involved in this. It's me and two other economists here, Chris Foote and Jeff Fuhrer, and an economist at the uh, Federal Reserve Board. Uh, and uh, the four of us have a proposal uh, to help uh, troubled borrowers. Uh, and our view was that the most effective way to tra- trouble borrowers was just to go in directly and, um, and to, uh, to help them make their payments, either in the form of a loan to borrowers directly or a, um, or a grant. And uh, what we thought, what our view was, that we really need to target um, that the group that is most that, that we can really help are borrowers who have had a life event. Specifically, they've lost their job or had an illness, which has resulted in a big uh, reduction in their income, and they're in a situation of negative equity. And I think those are the borrowers who account for a lot of uh, that actually, contrary to what uh, many people have argued, that actually is the largest single. I mean, that is, that's the sort of sweet spot of foreclosures. Uh, the the borrowers who have a payment that's too big because of a reset, I think we've shown, and a lot of other people have shown, that the association between resets of adjustable rate mortgages, increasing monthly payments, 
and default is very weak. And so that's a group we think accounts for a lot of the foreclosures out there. And um, the most direct way to help them is just to give them money uh, uh, directly. And uh, we've estimated it cost somewhere between 50 and $75 billion to help them, uh, uh, which yeah, at one time we thought of as an enormous amount of money. It seems less <laughs> so now. Uh, but the, um, uh, I mean, I think what we appeals to us about this as an alternative, uh, so in addition, it, it, well, for one thing is we think it will work, uh, and uh, it would actually prevent foreclosures. But I think another thing that's important to understand here is that we are trying to focus, um, uh, we are investing government money now in this. We're helping borrowers uh, who, um, we're picking winners and losers. I mean, we when we start spending government money, there are some people who are going to get helped and there are some people who aren't. And I think it's important that we, the people, the government, choose the people who we think deserve help, uh, not let the servicers decide, because we don't really know who the servicers are going to help with the money that they get from the government. They may help, uh, for example, they may decide that, so for example, going back to the self-cures, that uh, borrowers, for example, who have close ties to a community, those are borrowers who are more likely to figure something out, borrow money from family, get a second job, do all kinds of things to uh, to stay in their home, whereas someone who moved into some new subdivision somewhere, a new construction uh, 50 miles away from Center City, uh, those people are more likely to walk. Um, it may be that the cold, ruthless calculation of profit maximization says that you renegotiate with the person who is going to leave, uh, who is, doesn't have close ties to the community, uh, whereas we would try and, you know, our, if we're spending government money, we would feel the person most deserving of assistance is the person who has close ties to the community. So those are the sorts of things that, uh, that I think reasons why, if we want an effective foreclosure prevention policy, uh, we need to start with the borrowers, not with the servicers. Well, what about the bankruptcy alternative then, um, where uh, a court uh, would decide in individualized cases um, to modify uh, the mortgage to write down via lien stripping the mortgage amount down to the fair market value uh, of the home. Wouldn't that be a way to uh, compel modification via a the stick of lien stripping to achieve the so, same so result? So let me just clarify the question here. This would be, you're talking about involuntary uh, write-downs in bankruptcy court? Well, uh, Chapter 13. Involuntary a- from the, say, the the investors yes. perspective it's cram down right it's it's a voluntary procedure by the part of the the homeowner the debtor there they can't be involuntarily um, put into the bankruptcy case they they uh, have the option of of bankruptcy which uh, in time perhaps in a, a short amount of time would prompt uh, lenders and servicers to uh, to come to the come to the table that they're that they're now resisting. Um, so let me let me just say my opinion on cram down. I'm not really an expert on this. I think as a public policy, uh, the time is of the essence right now, and uh, it seems like the cram down is one of these things that it'll take a while. First of all, it's a, I mean, it's a bankruptcy process. It takes time. It'll take time before investors really figure out. Uh, and services really figure out what exactly the courts are going to do in terms of how they're going, how much, you know, which loans they're going to cram down, how 
how likely they are to do it. And I, I think it's one of these things that will take a long time before lenders get a clear idea of how they're going to do uh, in, uh, in court versus how they're going to do, uh, uh, you know, whether that they really should modify a loan. So, it, it, you know, maybe for the next go-around, uh, this is something that, um, that uh, you know, maybe 20 years from now, whenever we have our next foreclosure crisis, this is something that would be nice to have in place. But I don't see this as something that is uh, would really solve problems in the at the time horizon that we need. But it would change the dynamic, would it not? Well, it would, but I think it's it's as I said, it's unclear. Um, it's unclear. I think one of the things people so this is a little game theory here. People say, "Oh, just the threat of um, uh, of of going into uh, uh, going into bankruptcy." No, a credible threat is a threat that you are willing to carry out. So this would have to mean that there are borrowers out there, and a lot of them who are genuinely willing to go into bankruptcy uh, in order to uh, to prevent a, a foreclosure. And it's not clear to me that most borrowers, given the choice, a lot of borrowers would just as well walk away from the house. Uh, before they go uh, into foreclosure. So no, I mean that's not that's not how uh, I think it's not a credible threat uh, to go in. I mean, it's, as I say, if it's a credible threat. It has to be. There are lots and lots of homeowners who prefer bankruptcy to foreclosure. Uh, then it's a credible threat. Uh, and uh, but I I don't I just I, I don't see it as as something that will make make a big difference. Yeah, and then well, let me just add. I mean, and this point has been made by by several uh, several other people, but. Just the uncertainty that you're going to throw in uh, into the picture, especially in terms of sort of influencing future access to mortgage credit, you know, by rewriting the rules of the game ex post. Um, and I think that there's something to be said for that. And you know, I'm not I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not going to claim that there are going to be huge effects, but there are certainly going to be effects. And, and I, I don't think they're very clear effects right now. Uh, so, I mean, that's a, that's another risk that you run by doing something like cram down. You, uh, you also point out in your paper that um, uh, one of the uh, explanations for uh, these outcomes uh, that we're experiencing is that lenders actually expect to recover more from a foreclosure than from a modified loan. I think uh, most people could understand uh, about the redefault risk and the self-cure risk as reducing some of the of the costs, but um, please explain how lenders are actually recovering more from a foreclosure than they than they can from well, just again, what the I market mean, you, conditions. You have to, as Paul was saying before. I mean, one of the things that our paper I think does is sort of shed some light on the different components of the cost of modifying a loan. And it's not just the nominal cost of, of giving the borrower a concessionary mod- modification. Uh, in other words, it's not, you know, writing down principal by $10,000. You have to take into, into account the money you're going to lose from the people who would otherwise cure uh, in the absence of assistance, that's the self-cure risk. Uh, that adds to the cost, as well as the redefault risk. Well, we have to, one thing that, you know, you have to keep in mind, especially with respect to redefault risk, is that in in a sort of in the environment that we're in, uh, sort of in the midst, hopefully at the tail end of a financial crisis, in which you know there are large liquidity and risk premiums, I mean, discount factors are, are very discount rates are very high right now uh, in terms of valuing future cash flows. And so, if, you know, if a, an investor is sitting there and trying to decide whether or not it, it it's profit maximizing to modify a loan or or just go ahead and foreclose, 
if there is a significant risk of, of redefault, uh, sort of in a, in a short to medium term horizon, uh, and the discount rate or discount factor that that, that that investor is applying to future cash flows is, is low enough, uh, then, you know, it, it very well may be the case that it's more, you know, profit maximizing to go ahead and foreclose. I think that's what we mean by that, by that assertion. Uh, let me let me just put this. On. I, mean, I think uh, I think this, part of this is just a, a language um, uh, a language issue here. What we're saying is the decision is not to modify or foreclose. The decision is to modify or not modify. If you don't modify, you re- the 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 payoff you get from not modifying. And if you go and look, by the way, for example, at you know FDIC PowerPoint presentation on or the IndyMac, the FDIC IndyMac PowerPoint presentation on their modification plan. This is exactly the way it's described. Basically, you're choosing not between foreclosing and modifying. You're choosing between modifying and not modifying. If you modify the loan, there's, there are two outcomes. Either the borrower defaults uh, or the borrower uh, uh, pays off uh, the loan. If you don't modify, there are two possible outcomes. Either the borrower cures or the borrower uh, doesn't cure, and you actually uh, carry out a foreclosure. So the the decision to foreclose, um, the the problem is, you know, people say, oh well, you know, once the borrower is you know 150 days delinquent, then uh, then you know you're definitely going to foreclose. Uh, the problem is that you don't know uh, once you put in a if you if you announce the policy that I will modify any loan that's 120 days delinquent, you're going to have a lot of loans that are 120 days delinquent. Uh, and so you really can't you can't use the the you can't use the observed behavior of the borrower to infer that this is a borrower who would not cure on their own because of course if they know that they can that they'll get a modification for for doing something like being 120 days delinquent then of course you're going you know you're going you're going to end up with a lot of borrowers who would have self cured uh, but who are now 120 days delinquent so it doesn't uh, so as I said really the decision is is really do you modify or do you do nothing. And um, uh, you know, and then the foreclosure procedure takes its its uh, its its usual long, winding time. What's the incentive for a borrower to self cure if he's holding out for a check from the government that's going to help him pay his mortgage? Um, that's a great question. That's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. And uh, let me say. Um, well, and, and before you get go, before you answer it, Paul, let me just say uh, yeah, another yeah, analogy is what's the incentive of the servicer to modify a borrower if he's waiting for a bigger incentive from financial incentive from the government? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I realize. I mean, this is not to make light of this, but uh, I mean, this is just a takeoff on you know cash for clunker mortgages. Um, <laughs> you know, here, I mean, I, I, I would imagine it would be very popular. Uh, well, uh, the, okay, so this is. This is beyond. Let me just say, this is Chris. Don't you can't you can't blame Chris for this. This is our proposal, <laughs> uh, and this isn't in the. This is not the paper. Uh, so uh, so let me take the blame for this one, and uh, let me just say, I think that the um, so the criteria for qualifying for this is that you have to be unemployed. You have to suffer a substantial income loss, and uh, so uh, the the feeling was I mean, that's uh, a person given should, out, uh, with all due respect, that's a person should be renting. They shouldn't be a homeowner. If they've suffered a sustained period of unemployment, they have no method of making a mortgage payment. Why are we giving them money to make a mortgage payment? They should be renting a house, building uh, their their economic uh, uh, 
future, uh, rebuilding it, so that when housing prices uh, further decline, they are able at some point to uh, to reparticipate, if you will. Uh, in I mean, uh, well, well, I think, uh, I think Paul, let me uh, let me just let me just say, I uh, what I I mean, I, I I'm not disagreeing with you. I think what the uh, let me just articulate where the proposal came from is that I, what I'm saying is, look, I, I there are people who disagree with you. I'm not saying I'm, I am or I'm not one of them, uh, who view the number of, for, you know, view preventing foreclosures as a uh, as an end in itself. And there are reasons why people think that's, you know, that right. to some extent the people who are unemployed, in some sense, it's not really fair to them because they bought a house based on the assumption that the, you know, that the house would retain its value and they didn't didn't, you know, they didn't expect or they weren't responsible for whatever policies led house prices to fall. You know, then there's another argument that it creates all kinds of bad externalities for the community. It leads to, you know, vandalism and so forth. And so those are reasons why we would want to prevent a foreclosure. And in a sense, what I'm saying is this is what we need to do to prevent foreclosures. If you want to prevent foreclosures, an effective policy would be to assist borrowers. Now, what you're saying is I think a lot of these people shouldn't be owning homes, and that's a perfectly reasonable claim to make, and I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, I mean, I, I could disagree with it, but I think it, it, reasonable people can disagree about it. Uh, uh, I think what uh, what I would argue that reasonable people shouldn't be disagreeing about is that the effective way to prevent foreclosures is through uh, direct assistance to borrowers. Yeah, let me add to that. I think, um, I think Paul was, uh, in the proposal uh, itself, is also referring to transitory spells of unemployment. I mean, I, I don't think that they are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, I don't no, think that you, you're, absolutely right. you, you're talking about giving uh, substantial subsidies to people for an extended period of time. I mean, I think you're talking about a few months, you know, six months max, enough time for a, a reasonable person to find a new job and get back on their feet. Uh, it's not sustainable, uh, you, know, sist- you know, persistent uh, unemployment spells. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that these are people who would be able to get their, uh, you know, get a job in the future at some comparable level of income, uh, and uh, and you know, uh, uh, and that it's a tra- temporary, but you know, because of the economic conditions right now, extended spell uh, of unemployment. I appreciate the explanation. I look forward to the uh, town hall meetings where members of Congress explain that that proposal. Yeah, well, I mean, it's you know, I think let me just say about foreclosure relief, I think one of the things that I am keep coming back to is people view this as an engineering problem where, you know, we just need to write the right law and, right. and we can make all the people, all the worthy people right. better off and all the evil people uh, get punished. But the problem is any any public policy right now, any foreclosure relief scheme, any any rescue for the financial system is going to create winners and losers. And uh, really, I think it's, uh, it's what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying. I'm not saying I I think these people deserve to be foreclosed on or anything. I guess what I'm saying is this is a political question about who who should gain and who right. should lose. And uh, and it's not really an engineering question anymore of of you know what law could we change or what you know how could we tweak the uh, incentives for the servicers so that everybody wins. Right. Whatever we do, people are going to be annoyed. Right. Uh, people uh, are, I think, getting uh, getting a little bit annoyed about Washington's picking and choosing those winners and losers, uh, whatever criteria uh, uh, that they're that they're using. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, also, no doubt that we'll have many more opportunities to to talk about foreclosure 
policy uh, in Washington right. as as mortgage uh, cram down. We be back with us uh, this fall for sure. And um, uh, with that, I want to thank our guests. We're about out of time. Uh, Dr. Paul Willen and Christopher Girardi uh, for joining us. Thanks very much, uh, Paul and Chris. Oh, thank you. Our pleasure. And we thank you, our audience, for listening. You can hear or download more than 70 podcasts from our homepage at abiworld.org. Until next time, then, this is ABI Executive Director Sam Giordano saying good day.